Again, if you would, take out your Bibles. Let's turn to John chapter 5. And we will be reading today verses 15 through 30. So John 5, 15 through 30. John chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment... He who does not come to the judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of God. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out to those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for the reading of your word. We now ask, O God, that you would give us ears to hear as the word is preached today, particularly as we wade ourselves into deep theological waters. As we seek to to understand the relationship of the Son and the Father We pray, Father, that you would uh, sow the seed of your word deeply. That you would cause great growth in us as your people. That we would understand and know and apply your word to the glory of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, We do indeed find ourselves wading into some deep theological waters. 
Now, the occasion of the healing of the lame man at the pools of Bethsaida leads to a controversy over the Sabbath. This, in turn, opens the door to further controversy as the authorities rightly understand that Jesus is claiming divinity. And so what we are seeing today is both the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh, and the obedience of the Son, as he, he does only what the Father has shown him. What we have before us in John chapter 5 is a bounty of riches in terms of Christology and in the doctrine of the Trinity. As Jesus answers his opponents, he describes both his authority and his humility, his equality with God the Father, and his obedience to the Father. Truths which Christians have wrestled with and false teachers have twisted for millennia. Now, these truths do come at something of a crossroads in John's Gospel. The idle curiosity and perhaps distrust of the Jewish leaders toward Jesus was moving towards open hostility. He had critics, but they were more than merely critical of him. They were, and they were more than just willing to debate him. Some saw him as a threat and desired to kill him. Verse 16 actually explains that. It says, and this, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And so this account of healing on the Sabbath day, the accusation of being a Sabbath breaker, were things that Jesus was doing. These are the things which Jesus was doing. John indicates by saying that, these, th- these are the things, plural, he's indicating that these, these sort of things were happening more than once. This is just a representation of that. There were numerous events. And John 5 just simply gives us a representative example of the sort of things which Jesus was doing and the reason why the authorities were constantly persecuting him. Now notice that Jesus doesn't enter into a debate on the relative merits of the man carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. Whether or not the man was breaking the Sabbath is not Jesus' concern to litigate. He does not give an answer. He does, though, give an answer to the accusations made against him. In fact, uh, the word answer, which we see in verse 17, is a word which most often is used in connection with the trial. So Jesus is giving the answer as if, as if he's being tried. Jesus' Jesus's opponents, or his, his response rather, Jesus' response to his opponents and their plot against him, his defense offered is simply this. My father is working until now, and I am working. This is Jesus' defense. This is how he defends himself about being a Sabbath breaker. He says, Jesus says, the Father is working, and thus He is working also. Now, we might ask, well, what does this mean? What does this mean, the Father is working, and so, this, so He is working too? How is this a defense? Well, keep in mind, we should remember Genesis chapter 2, that on the seventh day of the creation week, God rested from His labors. We all remember that. And yet we also know that God continues to work. 
And we might ask, how? How does God continue to work? God continues to work in His works of providence, which are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. You might recall from our series through the book of Genesis that God's works of providence was a big theme throughout that book. God was constantly at work. God is continuing to work and governing and upholding this world. For it is only from God that we live and move and have our being. Now, some might try to say, you know, God made the world, but no longer rules the world. Or or God's not very interested in this world. There is a a view of the world which understands God as having basically created everything and then sort of walking away from it. It's like the clockmaker who builds the clock, winds it up, and then ignores it until it winds itself down. Now, this is a view known as deism. And although there are few people who claim to be deists today, uh, there are some who are practical deists, who, who don't see God active in this world. However, none of the Jews of Jesus' day understood the world in a deistic sort of manner. Certainly Christians uh, should not see the world in this way. The Bible does not present God in this sort of way. God is actively working in his providence. Now consider for a moment, could there ever be a point where God stops his works of providence? What would it look like if God took a day off? Even rabbis of Jesus' day would agree that God does not cease from his labors. If God were to somehow take a day off, if divine providence were to stop, then all of life, all of the cosmos would cease to exist. We couldn't have this world without God's continual work. God completed his work of creation in six days. He ceased from that, the work of creation on the seventh day. He entered into rest, his creation now being complete. Now, he didn't do this because he was tired. And we, we need to take a break because we get tired. God wasn't tired. God was providing a model for us. God the Father continues to work, however. And yet he could never be considered a Sabbath breaker. And Jesus here applies that principle to himself. And he does this for a very good reason. The Father continues to work and so does the Son continue to work. The Son is working because he is equal with the Father. This is the defense that Jesus is making. Now understand that the Jewish authorities understood very well what Jesus meant. And this caused them to seek to kill Jesus all the more. Because not only did they see him as a Sabbath breaker, but now now Jesus is claiming equality with God. Just as the Son of God is doing the work of God, since he is God, he has not ceased from his work. Now, what are the works of the Son? This is what John has been writing about at this point, and really throughout the entirety of his gospel. Jesus had come to bring life from death. Jesus had come to bring living water. Jesus had come to save sinners. He had come to heal not only the invalid from his ailment, but more broadly, of bringing redemption to men and women. This is the work that Jesus had come to do. 
Now, in the immediate context, Jesus had healed a man. He had told him to take up his mat, to walk. This is Jesus working. He's healing. But in doing so, uh, Jesus, Jesus is working just as the Father works. He's bringing life. He's bringing wholeness. And the reason this is, is because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Luke 6 and Mark 2 tell us this. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so his, his work falls in the same category as the Father's work, work of providence. Just as all the feasts and festivals of the Old Testament pointed to the coming of the Messiah, so does the Sabbath day itself. And the scriptures testify of Jesus that he himself is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of the rest for God's people which was to come. We can read about how the Exodus generation didn't enter into the rest of the promised land, even as the next generation under Joshua does enter into the rest. And yet, this was not the full promised rest. There was yet a rest to come. Hebrews 4, 8 through 10. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There is still a rest to come for the people of God from dead works. And this is a rest which is enjoyed by faith in Jesus Christ. That rest had come with the arrival of Jesus. And every Sabbath day, and now every Lord's Day, is a pointed reminder of God's rest after creation, but also of our ultimate rest in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God, because Jesus Himself is our Sabbath rest. We rest in Christ. And so the Father's work has continued without end, along with his unbroken seventh day rest. It's like these two parallel tracks, God's continual rest, his unbroken rest, and his continual and unbroken work of providence. So Jesus' work is the work of the Father, even as the rest of Jesus is the rest of the Father. And the Sabbath, as a sign, must yield to the reality, the resting and saving restoration of Jesus. Now, Jesus' opponents understood well the implications of this very brief statement which he makes. And they key in on the fact that he was calling God his Father. It was one thing to commit Sabbath infractions and to teach others this might be enough for some to seek to kill him. But it's quite another thing to claim equality with God. Now, in a sense, what Jesus, uh, in, in what sense, we might ask, in what sense is Jesus making himself equal with the Father? You should understand that in making himself equal with God, he is not doing so as another small g God. Right? He's not saying he's equal with God as he's like another God. That's not what he's saying. Although there are some cults who say that that's what he's saying. That's not actually what he's saying. He's not, a, he's, not a, he's not a separate God of equal value. The Son is not a rival God to the Father. No, Jesus, the Son of God, is co-equal with and of the same substance as God the Father. 
Jesus, the Son, is not independent of the Father. Everything that the Son does is that which comes from the Father. And so the relationship of the Son to the Father is one which is marked by obedience. The Son is obedient to the will of the Father. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And both the work of the Father and the Son are the work of God. Not only does the Son do only those things which please the Father, but verse 19, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, points out that in this sense, the relationship between the Father and the Son is not reciprocal. John could not say that the Father does only what he sees the Son doing. It is the Son who is obedient to the Father. What John is doing here, he's giving us, through the words of Jesus, a part of Trinitarian theology. Again, as I've said, these are deep theological waters which, which we are beginning to wade into. And in a sense, we can only dip our toe into. Entire treatises and books have been written on this subject. And falling into error in this is really, really easy. So we want to be very careful. Suffice to say that in the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. But though there is an ontological unity within the Trinity in terms of their being the essence, their equal essence in being, all three persons are one God and eternally equal The whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. And yet, each person within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each has his distinct role to play in the history of redemption. This is what is often called the economic trinity. We can speak of the ontological trinity, God's equality within the three persons, the the complete equality. But then we can speak of the economic trinity. The roles. For example, the Father decreed salvation, the Son accomplished salvation at the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to sinners. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, is doing the work given by the Father, namely, accomplishing redemption, and as such, is perfectly obedient to that task. The Son does only that which has been given, that which He sees the Father doing in perfect obedience to the Father. In fact, it is the perfect obedience, it's the perfect obedience of the Son, both in His passive and active obedience, through which Christ redeems us. It is His obedience, it's by His obedience that we are saved. Now, how, does, how, does, how is it that the Son does whatever the Father does? And verse 20 explains, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. 
So the father loves the son, and the love that the father has for the son, you know, that the intertrinitarian love, that love that the father has for the son is displayed in his, dis- his continual disclosure of all that he does. The son's love, likewise, is shown in his perfect obedience to the will of the father, even to the point of death on the cross. Already we've seen healings in John, various signs and wonders. We've seen Jesus' teachings, his instructions on the Sabbath. Uh, These are the great works the Son has accomplished in obedience to the Father. And yet we see greater things than these will come. Things which will make the marvel. To put it in the vernacular, you ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus' opponents have seen the signs performed. They've at least seen the outcome of these signs. They've seen the healings, the miracles. And these opponents do not rest on Him. They are, they are opponents because they are not resting on Him by faith. They are opposed to Him. Notice that up to this point, they don't even mention the signs which Jesus had performed. They don't mention anything about, hey, we, you healed this guy who had been you know, lame for all these years. Nothing is mentioned about that. They don't, they don't seem to care about the life which Jesus is bringing. Jesus will com- communicate the Father's works and will bring them the greater things, greater signs. He will do greater things which they will marvel at, namely the raising of the dead. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. In the Old Testament, the raising of the dead was the prerogative of God alone. Even Elijah, when he raised the widow's son in 1 Kings chapter 17, was serving as a representative of God. Elijah cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and revived the boy. Jesus' authority goes beyond that of Elijah. For the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father gives life. The Son gives life. The works of the Father are the works of the Son. God gives physical life as He wills, and He gives spiritual life as He wills. The life which Jesus brings is resurrection life on the last day, but also immediate spiritual life as one hears His Word and believes, trusting and resting on Him. John 1, 12 and 13 again, But to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is Jesus who is giving life, resurrected life. Just as the Father gives life, the Son gives life as He wills. It speaks of the authority of the Son, who is obedient to the Father. We see both of these. I hope you are seeing this over and over. The authority of Jesus and His obedience. The authority and obedience. This is speaking of the authority of the Son in His obedience to the Father. Life. Bringing life indeed. But even as the Son and the Father are doing the same work, there is also work which is distinct. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment 
to the Son. The demonstration of the greater things that will be shown is not only in the Son's authority to give life to the dead, but also Jesus' authority to stand in judgment on the last day. This is a a distinction in the roles between the Father and the Son. The Father does not judge because He has given that authority to the Son. It is the Son who is the judge. And so the flow of thought between verses 21 and 22 is this. The Father and the Son both give life. But the Father has determined that it will not be His task to judge, but He has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And the reason that all judgment has been given to the Son is so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the functional or economic subordination of the Son has as its supreme purpose the work of redemption. Nevertheless, the Son is to share in the same honor as the Father because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, for that matter, are one God. All are owed the same honor and glory. Therefore, the Son is not like a mere ambassador. He's who's just doing the bidding on behalf of the king. He does not have a merely derived authority as as if he works on behalf of another. In the world, the obedient envoy never shares in the glory of the head of state. You know, if, you, if you were to send out uh, an envoy on behalf of the president, he never shares the same honor as our president. And yet here we see that Jesus is to share the same honor as the Father. This is, this is, this is, this is key, right? The, the distinction between the Father and the Son, and yet the, the sharing in glory, because each, they're God, they're one God. Jesus is speaking of the Son's obedience and the honor which He must share with the Father. This is, this is again, this is deep theological waters we're, we're treading through here. And there's a, there's a lot of nuance here. But listen, the Jews are quite correct in detecting that Jesus was, quote, making Himself equal with God. They, they were understanding rightly what Jesus was getting at. In fact, Jesus says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So giving honor to the one is giving honor to the other. Again, because it's one God. The Father and the Son are equal in essence, works, and in glory. This is what was already alluded to. We've we've mentioned numerous times a quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus is not saying he's another God like God. He's not saying that he he is just one mode of God, as if God were some sort of shapeshifter. What is being proclaimed here is the diversity and unity within the Godhead. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit of the same substance, having equal works, equal glory, and yet having their particular works. The Son being always obedient to the Father and being entrusted with the particulars of His work, namely redemption and judgment. This is the work that Jesus has been given. Now, we may ask, how how does redemption and judgment relate to one another? 
Because redemption and judgment seem like opposite things or differing things. But we must press on for the answer. Verse 24 is introduced by the familiar formula, Amen, Amen, which means truly, truly, or has the meaning of I speak to you the solemn truth. Here the theme introduced in the, in the previous verses is further developed. The Son gives life, and those people who are given life are now presented. Those who hear the word of Christ and believe the Father who sent Him, they are the ones who have eternal life. Recall that Jesus had healed the invalid by his word. So it is that his word brings eternal life, which leads to either the cleansing of sin, the forgiveness and redemption, or it leads to judgment. The one who belongs to God, having been predestined for adoption according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1.5, hears the voice of God in Christ and is granted eternal life in Christ. Hearing Jesus, hear, and hearing God, again, is the same thing. But hearing is not only intellectual assent. It is believing that it's true. It's obedience to it. Doing the word which God has commanded, not just hearing it. It's not just you know, the, the vibration of your eardrum as you hear, hear it. It's, it's knowing it. It's true and believing it. It's doing it. Jesus, or rather James, deals with this in his epistle. Speaking of dead faith, faith without obedience is dead. <laughs> True faith is a faith which works out his or her salvation with fear and troubling. It is knowing and obeying God's truth. The one who hears and believes in this way has eternal life and will not be condemned. The alternative is to continue in death. To be condemned already. This is how redemption and judgment relate to one another. Now again, Jesus introduces a thought in verse 25 with Amen, Amen. Again here, teasing out the tension between the already and the not yet of Christian eschatology. An hour is coming and is now here. Jesus had used the same expression with the woman at the well in John 4.23. In terms of the not yet, the day is coming at the end of all things, on the last day, when the dead will hear his voice and those who hear will live. It's like those, it's like those dry bones in Ezekiel who hear and respond. The dead will be raised, but already and is now here. Christ has come. And is present now. And the spiritually dead there hear his voice and live. They are given new spiritual life. And so Christ is looking forward to that which is to come. But salvation and the dead hearing is already a present reality. As the gospel is proclaimed, the spiritually dead are given new spiritual life. This is true for us, isn't it? We've heard and believed and have new life in Christ. And yet, we look forward to that day, don't we? When all things are made new. Resurrection life is a future hope physically, but it is a present hope in Christ spiritually now. It is the voice of the Son of God crying out, which is bringing life to the dead, dry bones of His people. Those who hear, it says, have life. They are redeemed. And why can the Son do this? 
How is it that the Son can call out and the dead hear and have life? The linking word for introduces the explanation. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God has life in himself means that God is self-existent. All life flows from him. He has always been the living God. And human beings are derived creatures. We come from Him. Life flows out of Him. We receive life from God Himself. And God can remove our life as He sees fit. And when He sees fit. All of this is in God's sovereign hands. Just as the God, God the Father has life in Himself, so does the Son. The granting of this to the Son is an act which belongs to eternity and is part and parcel with the Father-Son relationship within the Godhead. The Son, as the prologue has already asserted, is the eternal Word. The Son has the grounds and authority from the Father to call the dead to life by His powerful Word. Again, the work of the Father and the work of the Son are the same work. And giving life. Further, the Father has given the, author- the Son authority to execute judgment, and He has done so because He is the Son of Man. In verse 27. Now, some have taken this in verse 27, the Son of Man, to uh, to mean that because Jesus is human, that that is what makes Him the Son of Man, and so He has been given permission by the Father to stand as the judge of His fellow men. Although this might be part of it, there is also the apocalyptic Son of Man of Daniel 7, and then the the, the prophet, Ezekiel's use of the term, speaking of the human prophet. These, These also should be borne in mind. Jesus is using this biblical term with a number of purposes in mind. Again, D.A. Carson, in his commentary, uh, sees multiple strands coming together with this term, Son of Man. Saying this, quote, Jesus is the apocalyptic Son of Man who receives from the Ancient of Days the prerogatives of deity, a kingdom that entails total dominion. At the same time, he belongs to humanity and has walked where humans walk. It is a combination of these features which make him uniquely qualified to judge. End quote. Now, in addition to judgment, uh, judgment is linked with revelation. Judgment comes because men love to walk in the darkness and not in the light. Men are judged for walking in darkness, for doing the deeds, for doing wicked deeds. The Son of Man has come to bring the revelation of the gospel, the good news of salvation and redemption by faith. The result of this, the result of this rejection of revelation then is judgment. Jesus is the ultimate of God's self-revelation. Faith in Him and in His Word leads to life and salvation. It leads to rescue. The logical alternative then is to remain in judgment. Because they're condemned already. Jesus has the authority to judge as the Son of Man because He is the Son of God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him, Matthew 28, 18 reminds us. He is God and man, having taken on flesh, coming to his own. Thus, he is one with the human race. But also because he has come to bring the revelation of himself. He has spoken his word. 
And this authority to judge is rooted in this this revelatory word, in life-giving function as the light who shines in darkness. Again, these are deep theological waters we have found ourselves in. And yet Jesus says to his opponents not to be amazed. He says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Much of John's gospel deals with what we might call realized, the realized aspects of eschatology. That is, the spiritually dead have been raised and made alive in Christ. But here, Jesus is speaking about things which are yet in the future. Those things which are yet to come. We might call those the unrealized aspects of eschatology. There is a day coming when Jesus will speak and the dead in their graves will rise, both the believer and unbeliever. Those who have experienced eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ, and thus in their life do good, having been transformed, living in righteousness, they will be raised to resurrected life. Those outside of Christ, having not been born from above, having no life, for they did not trust and rest in Christ, will be resurrected for judgment. In fact, John has already stated earlier that they are condemned already. You see, it is the case that people go to eternal judgment because they're sinners. They are already under condemnation. They are already under condemnation. And Jesus is rescuing us from that. This is what all the promises of the Old Testament were about, pointing forward to that Redeemer who would come. They were looking forward to that day when Jesus would come for us. He has come. He rescues us as he's rescued those who come before by faith. But as we see in verse 30, Jesus is not acting alone. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. As judge, Jesus judges with a just judgment. Because like everything, it is done according to the word and will of the Father. Again, the authority and the obedience of the Son. Jesus here reiterates what has already been said before. He is obedient to the Father. His perfect obedience and commitment is not to please himself. But the Father guarantees that all he does and says now until the last day is totally and completely in accord with the Father. The Son only does that which is in accordance with the Father. The Son always does the will of the Father. Beloved congregation, these are deep waters. Uh, Jesus is the perfect, obedient Son to the Father. And yet with the Spirit, the three are one God. Jesus does only that which is given by the Father. He has come to redeem. He has come to give life. He has the distinct role also of judgment. Beloved Christian, be encouraged. You can be encouraged. Because though these are difficult doctrines to understand, these are difficult things to to get our mind wrapped around, God has seen fit to reveal them in a rather simple way for us. 
Through the words of Jesus, the Son has authority. He has been given power, and He works as the Father works. He is obedient to the will of the Father. Take comfort in your Savior. You can take comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ, because He does all things well. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we are thankful for the obedience of our Savior Jesus and the authority as equal with the Father, O God. These are such difficult truths, and yet we believe them. We know that our Redeemer lives, that He gives life, that the work of the Son is the work of the Father, that You are, O God, a triune and yet one God. It is difficult for us to get our heads around that, and yet we confess these truths because it's in Your Word, and we believe You. Help us, O God, to be encouraged in our faith, knowing that Jesus has, been, has won for us redemption at the cross, and that there is a day coming when He will return again, and that He will come as judge, and that we are judged as righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. We thank you. And we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.